Good morning. Welcome to Parkview. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here. It's great to have you here. And so I appreciated Eric's story there. One thing you'll notice if you come to Parkview is we study the Word of God, and the Bible really has changed my life. And and I know many of you would say the same thing, and then many of you may have been like Eric previous to five years ago, like maybe haven't read this book very much. So I love the simplicity of his invitation to us today. So so um, homecoming weekend, right? And so if you're a football fan, man, yesterday in the state of Iowa was like a big day. Sorry, you and I, but like Iowa State beating Oklahoma, the Hawkeyes doing their thing as usual, right, on homecoming. So it's beautiful. You know, I came in, it was still dark this morning, full moon, all the trees, everything's turning. Life's good, right? In Iowa, football's going good, life's good, and all that. So um, one thing that's... Um, one thing that's kind of a hallmark of Iowa football, the University of Iowa, is that they are known for being a place that takes in the recruits that nobody else wanted and then turns them into all pros, okay? So like guys like Chad Greenway, Bob Sanders, Dallas Clark, even this year our star, Josie Jewell, like didn't get a formal offer until right around the deadline. Was even looking like he might go play at Luther College. He ends up coming to Iowa and he's like an all-American level linebacker, all right? So it's kind of our story here. In fact, Tom Lenning is a high school recruiting, just nationwide um, kind of expert on this stuff. And he says that no one develops players better than the University of Iowa. Kirk Ferentz and his staff have an eye on the kids that everybody else overlooks, sees potential, and then develops them into all pros. So it's kind of one of our, you know, we may not win everything every year, but we're good at like finding the guys nobody else wanted and turning them into pros. So that's a good thing about Iowa football. And so what we're going to see this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, you can start turning there on your Bible app. You can start turning to Mark chapter 3, verse 7. But we're going to see, no offense to Kirk Ferentz, but actually Jesus is, is even better, way better, at scouting out people that nobody else would choose, people that were overlooked, and bringing them on his team, not just to win football games, but to literally influence the world. Mark chapter 3 is where you kind of see the heartbeat of, of what Jesus came to this earth to do as we see the kind of the team that he's grabbing around him. In Mark chapter 3, we're going to see, uh, we've been studying the Gospel of Mark since uh, September 10th, and I'm going to be doing it all the way through Easter. And one thing we've seen as we've gone through Mark is that Jesus' popularity is growing, all right? So in chapter 1, he was drawing crowds, and if they were driving in that day and he was in Iowa City, the parking lot would be filled with cars from like Johnson County and Cedar County and Lynn County and Washington County. But now in chapter 3, like where Jesus, if he had the same event here, you'd see cars from Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Missouri, uh, Kansas. Like this is going big. This is going regional now. And so Jesus is surrounded by big crowds of people. So almost like pop icon world today, it almost be like Bieber stepping somewhere and a bunch of people there, or maybe your day was Elvis, like whenever Elvis would show up and there'd be the crowds going around him, or if maybe your world is like maybe cookie butter at a Trader Joe's grand opening, like what it would feel like to be that jar, you know, in the opening day. So whatever your analogy is there, Jesus was a big deal. And it's so good for us to remember that. Jesus wasn't just some boring guy that wore a robe and wrote some poetry and got beat up a lot and just kind of lived in obscurity. Like Jesus was the thing in Mark chapter 3. But even though he's surrounded by the crowds, Jesus is going to pick out, he's going to have an eye for those that he truly wants on his team. And so the invitation to us this morning is, is to be able to ask and answer the question, well, what would it take to be on Jesus' team? What does he, what does he look for? Like how... Even though I may be a one-star recruit, you know, Iowa gets all these low-star recruits, 
turns them into all pros. What would Jesus look at? If Jesus is looking at a vast crowd of people, who would be the ones that Jesus would invite to be on his team? We're going to see three groups out of that vast crowd. Jesus had fans. Jesus had foes. But Jesus was really looking for followers. And so the invitation this morning is, is are we the kind of people Jesus would invite to be followers? All right, so let's pray. We'll jump into this great passage. And let me just ask you to pray first. You can just where you are. Might have been an active hero. If you're like, might have been an active heroism or whatever, but just could you ask in these next minutes, Jesus would speak to you, that he would have access to your heart this morning. So just pray, pray for that. that God would speak through his word this morning. Jesus, what a privilege for us to open this book and to read about you and to read about your life. So would you speak clearly to us today and would you just open our eyes to which of those we are with you right now? Are we just a fan? Are we a foe? Or are we truly your followers? What an amazing opportunity you invite us to follow you to be on your team so would you speak to your people today in jesus name amen so mark chapter 3 verse 7 is where we're going to start says that jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed this is the first time mark used the word great the crowds are growing great crowd followed from galilee and judea and jerusalem and idumea and from beyond the jordan and from around tyre and sidon And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So Jesus' fame is growing and it's spreading. The crowds are growing great. And, and it's, it's clear that this, this is just a thing. Like Jesus is popular. Jesus is it. People are coming. And I would say that in general, most of these people coming are fans. Like you don't, you don't sense they even really care that much about Jesus. Like he's getting mobbed. He's getting crushed, right? He has to scramble and get a boat and get out in the water just so he can get away from being crushed by the mobs. They want what he has, okay? And so Jesus isn't really looking for fans. You'll see there's several things that he does when he pulls away or when he does different things. You can tell he's not after crowds. He's not after fans. You can't help it when they show up, but that's not what he's after. Because I think if you look into the heart of a fan, a fan, is, a fan can be pretty fickle, right? So as, we, as you follow the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, you're going to see towards the end of his life, I mean, the crowds gathered on that Passion Week, that week when he was arrested and crucified, rose again. Early in that week, man, the crowds gathered and they worshiped him. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But that very throng of people, five days later, were the ones who yelled, crucify him. Fans are pretty fickle, right? And so if you dig into the heart of a fan, and again, we're going to use this passage this morning as a mirror to kind of reflect our hearts and ask the question, are we fans, are we foes, are we followers? I think if you look into the heart of a fan, a fan goes to Jesus 
not necessarily to say, Jesus, we just want you to show us what to do. We want you to just lay out the plan and we'll follow you. A fan just wants Jesus to do something for them. A fan in general is pretty content with their lives, but maybe they're in a jam or maybe need some need some help, or they're kind of hurting, or, you know, my life's pretty good, but if you could just give me this, Jesus, if I follow you, will you give me a date? Will you give me a spouse? Will you give us a baby? Will you give us a better job? Will you give us, I feel better? Will you give me a little more joy? So when you're pursuing Jesus, not for him, but for what he might give you, like that's a good sign that we might be fans, but, but not followers. He's not looking for fans. Um, he's looking for followers. So so that's what's going on. And then you jump, and also in this text, we're going to see that not just had all these crowds and fans, but, but he had some foes as well. So if you jump down to verse 20, and Jesus had foes that really kind of came from two unexpected places. And as I explain these, maybe some of you have faced opposition before. As you've tried to follow Jesus, maybe you've had some opposition like he did. So you go to verse 20 now in chapter 3. It says, And Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again, man. He just couldn't shake the crowds. The fans are going everywhere. And says so that he couldn't even eat. He was so busy, so surrounded that he wasn't even able to eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Okay, so, so here's what's going on. The family, and so there's also we'll see Jesus' family in Mark chapter 6. At this point in his life, that's referring to his mom. There were four brothers and at least two sisters in his family. Again, we're going to see a little more detail in Mark chapter 6. But his family is coming to seize Jesus. That's a violent term. Like This is like an intervention. This is the family getting together. Okay, okay, you know what? Brother Jesus here, he's just getting a little bit off. Like we knew there was something special. We knew the shepherds. We knew the story and all that, but this is crazy. Like seriously, they're just looking at the bedlam, the crowds, the noise, the the demons coming out, the people being heroes. Like Jesus isn't a pop star. Like I thought he was supposed to come and be be like Messiah and all this. What's going on here? And so they're stepping in and we don't know motives here. Was this out of shame to the family name? Was this out of genuine concern for Jesus? But this was a showdown. This is the family coming to intervene and just kind of remove Jesus from the scene, have a little talk because he's out of his mind, okay? So let me throw something out there. One thing I love about the Bible is how real it is. Like if this book were just made up, if this was a bunch of made up stories, you're trying to present Jesus as the son of God, you wouldn't have a part in there that his family thought he was nuts. Like, you would probably scrub that part out. If it happened, you wouldn't highlight that. Or, or if you were making it up, you, why would you write that part in there? Like, that just shows, it shows the authenticity of this story. It shows the authenticity of the scripture. But I wonder, too, as you look at this, the people, even in his own family, kind of posing him. I just wonder if we were to have some candid conversations in the room this morning. Like, how many of you have felt opposed uh, to following Jesus by people in your own family. That's not because maybe, you know, we've all maybe been guilty of this, of being too pushy or self-righteous or condemning. Like, not because of that. We deserve to be opposed for that, right? Sometimes we're jerks in the way we follow Jesus. But what about the times you authentically, you're trying to pray more, you're trying to maybe like Eric, read your Bible more, be more involved, or seek out community more, or talk more about your faith. I wonder how many of us would share candid stories about family members just kind of told you, would you just shut up about that? Or would you pipe down a little bit? Or you're getting a little extreme here. Um, some of my favorite years in ministry were the years that I got to work with students. 
who is calling me? <laughs> That's weird. It was my dad. He usually live streams. Hey, dad, you just called me. So it's crazy. It's crazy. He's probably really embarrassed right now. He just butt dialed his son preaching. So maybe he's saying, don't talk about us. He's talking about family opposing. So maybe that's what's going on. Dad, you didn't. You were good with this. Okay, you're not. You're off the hook for this one. Wow, that's that is really random. So that was not a setup. That just legitimately happened. So, okay, where was I? Oh yeah, so maybe you're just trying to follow Jesus and your family like butt dials you when you're preaching and stuff like that. So, um, but Jesus had foes from his family. Like, again, he's kind of stepping out there. He's trying to follow, you know, he's got enough foes in other places. You would hope your mom and your brothers and sisters would be right with you. And so sometimes the hardest place to live out your faith is going to be at home. Um, and so let me flip that around a little bit. Let's say you're in a family scenario right now. And, oh, I know where I was going. I was going to talk about when I did youth ministry. And those were great years. You know, some of the saddest stories, though, were um, sometimes you'd see parents stepping in and just say, you know what? My kid's getting too involved. I, I can't have that. You know, or my, 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 my kid's starting to maybe read the Bible too much or starting to talk about his faith too much. That's a little extreme. And so I remember one mom, even his her son was just cruising and really stepping into leadership level things. And in a phone call one time, she just said, you know what? I, I just think that's kind of done. We're just kind of uncomfortable with that. It broke my heart because his friends were really solid kids. The families were friends with that family. And I thought really doing a good job of just walking humbly but following Jesus. And I tried to say, hey, you know, because this was all new to her. I said, if he keeps following Jesus, like here's what Jesus is going to do to him. He's going to make him a servant leader. He's going he's to teach him to lay down his life for others. You know, he's going to teach him to love his enemies. Like I think it's going to make him even a better son than he already is. It's going to set him up to be a godly man that's going to, and she would have nothing to do with it and just cut him off from there on. So one thing to us is maybe this morning, maybe in your scenario, you're being opposed, but maybe the other scenario is you've got a spouse or a sibling or even a child who's really taken off. And sometimes that makes us feel uncomfortable. Like, who do you think you are? Like, you're not, because we can think of all the bad things they've ever done and said, right? That's what family's for, right? Keep us humble. But like, if that's you, I just encourage you to be humble and to watch that. Let me, let me paint some beautiful pictures. I remember in student ministry days, a lot of times the kids would be the ones to start catching it. And when you'd have a humble mom and dad watching that, it's going like, man, they're, they're onto something here and would start following. Like we have many families that would start coming to church because they'd watch their kids start growing. So, or sometimes maybe it's harder for spouses, you know, like if, again, husband or wife's really taken off and you're not, like just to be humble with that. But Jesus, if you're the one walking through that opposition from family this morning, just know Jesus walked that path. I encourage you to just keep walking that humbly, keep being, keep being bold, keep being a servant. But, but that's one place Jesus faced opposition. The other place would be, again, another place you would have thought Jesus would have got encouragement, and it was from his faith community. Okay, It was from his faith community. If you go to verse 22, right after the family did this, verse 22 says that the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying about Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. Okay, so these are the scribes. These are the scholars that really knew the Bible. And so if you lived in Jesus' day, these are the people you were looking up to to help you understand what God taught in the Old Testament, to help you understand what it takes to follow God. 
And now you've got those people claiming that Jesus is demon-possessed, right? So he's getting a one-two punch here from family and from what should be the faith community, the people that should know the scriptures, and honestly, the people that should have known the scriptures well enough that they see what was predicted about Messiah in the Old Testament, then they see what Jesus is doing. And again, if they were humble, if they were truly letting the scriptures speak, they would have connected dot A and B, and they would have been on team Jesus. But these guys opposed Jesus. They were against him. And I guess you can't get much harsher in your criticism than saying you're demon-possessed, right? So that's what's going, going on here. These scribes, the ones who came down to Jerusalem, so these would be the national leaders. These would be, this would be from like central headquarters. In the first uh, couple chapters in Mark, we've seen some local opposition from some of the religious leaders. I thought Wade did a great job last week of unpacking some of that, that, the, that Jesus was coming with a new paradigm and some of the local religious establishment was pushing against him. But now you're bringing in the big dogs from Jerusalem, and they're the ones saying that Jesus is demon-possessed. So let me say two things. You're going to see opposition to Jesus throughout the Gospel of Mark. That's why we called it the crown and the cross, this whole series. That on one hand, Jesus is going to be presented as the authority, as the king, you know, who's come to do all these great things that God promised in the Old Testament. But the cross represents the opposition and the persecution. And so he's facing that here front on. And as we confront these opponents of Jesus, can I ask you to do two things? Number one, every time you see a Pharisee or scribe confronting Jesus, my tendency is to just blow through that. Go, yeah, those guys are jerks. What did they know? Can I ask you this? The longer that you have known Jesus, could you just pump the brakes? and just kind of linger over those sections a little bit because I tend to find more of me in the Pharisees and the religious leaders than I like to admit, okay? Because what happens, I think all of our hearts tend to go this direction, that the longer we follow Jesus, we begin to put Jesus in a box. We kind of try to take Jesus and make him comfortable and accessible to us. Like there's, if you truly study the life of Jesus, there's some pretty extreme and radical things he'll say. So what we tend to do is clip off those hard things and make Jesus attainable, put him in a box. And then we, of course, the box fits what we do anyway. So we're, we qualify. We're good. We're righteous. We follow Jesus. And then what that leverages you to do is to, is to kind of compare and then be you know, kind of critical of everybody else who doesn't do it the way you do it. Just watch for that tendency. Um, because Jesus um, doesn't really look for foes. He's not looking for people that are going to box him in. He's looking for followers and see what he's really like and people who are willing to just kind of lay, lay their lives before him instead of saying, this is Jesus, he's in my box. It's the people that says, no, Jesus is unbelievable and I need to constantly just come to him with my life and say, what needs to change now? Jesus. What about how I'm following you? What about how I'm doing ministry needs to change, Jesus? You, you lead me. So watch for that. And the second thing is, this just hit me about a year or two ago. If you read the Gospels, and whenever Jesus faces the opponents, these guys, I mean, they're saying he's demon-possessed. My response would have been like, <laughs> forget you guys. Like, we have nothing to talk about here. I'm gone. Like, Jesus stays, and he talks to these people, okay? And I, I, I'll, I'll admit, there's times he uses some pretty blunt language, and he's pretty, pretty sharp at times. But I think you can see in almost every conversation, what Jesus is really doing is he's reaching out to them. He's loving them. 
And so it happens in this one too. They've just called him demon-possessed. And Jesus says, okay, you guys are really intelligent. Let me tell you a story. Let me give you a parable. He says, okay, so if I were on Satan's team, why am I casting out demons? Like, why am I going against what Satan does? He says, that's where that famous saying where Jesus says, a house divided against itself will fall. So like if Satan and I are supposed to be on the same team, but I'm opposing him, that doesn't make sense. So he's getting their attention. And you've seen it already throughout Mark. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus went into the wilderness, was tempted by Satan, and he came out victorious. You see right away, one of the first miracles Jesus performed was casting out demons. So whenever it's Jesus versus demons, Jesus wins big. All right, so, so Jesus says, here's the real analogy, that there's a strong man in a house. And if you want to get into that house and kind of set free all the, all the captives that that strong man has, you need somebody stronger than that strong man to come into the house, bind him, so that all that he has taken captive can escape and go free. And Jesus is saying, that's, that's what I've done. That's why you see me with the demons. That's why you saw me in the wilderness come out. Like, I have defeated the strong man. Like the song we sang earlier, he has defeated sin and death and all that holds us back. Jesus has defeated that. That is bound so that now we can be set free from that. Do you hear how, again, he could have mic dropped and just left these guys, but he's giving them a couple pictures here. In fact, it kind of culminates in verse 28, where he says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, and whoever, you know, and, and whatever blasphemies they utter. So you guys have just called me demon-possessed. You know what? Like, I'm willing to forgive that. Like, there's forgiveness available for you. That's the story here. Not that I'm possessed by a demon, but that I've defeated Satan, evil, death, and I'm here to set you free. Like, I'm here to offer forgiveness. But then again, here's one of his stern warnings at the end of that, is when he says, um, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he is an unclean spirit. Okay, let's unpack that a little bit. I don't think we just go through this section and go, that's a nice verse, post that on your refrigerator. Let's just go on. No, let's, let's unpack that a little bit because I think even that is a statement of Jesus communicating truth and communicating love to these people, all right? So, so as a pastor at times, I've had people come up and ask me, you know, kind of with some terror in their voice, have I committed the unforgivable sin? What is the unforgivable sin? I think in this context, it's clear that what Jesus is warning these guys about is this. You have seen me, speaking to these foes, you have seen me do some miraculous things. Those have been done by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by the power of Satan. You've seen nothing yet, because eventually there's going to be one act that will blow all these other acts away. I will die, and I will come back to life from the dead. I will rise again from the dead to prove that I have victory over sin and death and to prove that God offers forgiveness to sinful people. Now, if you attribute that to Satan, or if you blow that off, then you, you cannot be forgiven. Like, that's, that's the only way our sins are forgiven is through what Jesus did. So I think Jesus is warning these guys. If you think what I'm doing is from Satan, you're in very dangerous ground. Uh, you need to have your eyes open and see that this is God moving through his Holy Spirit because there's an even greater thing coming. So Jesus dying on the cross and rising in from the dead is not just like an option for us on a spiritual buffet. I'll take a little bit of Jesus. I'll take a little bit of Buddha. I'll take a little bit of like, no, Jesus is the way that our sins are forgiven. And so Jesus is saying, do not take these acts of God and say they are being done by 
by Satan. Okay, so there's an element of this unforgivable sin that's historical. It's what these guys did when they saw Jesus doing these things and saying that's demonic. But there's also an element of that sin that carries over today, that if we remain hostile to Jesus in opposition to what he did in his death and resurrection, then we cannot be forgiven of sins by God. That is, that is the way we're forgiven. And so my encouragement to you this morning is, you know, for whatever reason, if maybe some religious people in your past or people said they were Christians, treated you bad, and so you're kind of, a, you would say you're a foe of Jesus because you're kind of mad at those people or they are hypocrites and all that. I encourage you, let's, you know, I'm sorry about that. Let's look at the life of Jesus and let's look at what he did on the cross and look at the, the death and resurrection and the love he's offering you. Or if you just kind of blown it off, well, that couldn't happen, that's not possible. Again, I think Jesus, these words are strong, but they're motivated by his love. Like, make sure you understand that what happened there with death and resurrection was not, that's not demonic, um, it's not made up, it's the real deal. It's a demonstration of the power of God that leads to our salvation when we put our faith in him, all right? So, so again, just kind of watch that. You're going to see, you know, he's tons of fans, he's got foes, in his life. But now let's let's get, okay, I've been dragging you on. Okay, what's a follower look like? What is Jesus looking for? And so I'm going to show you two things. I want to show you Jesus' plan for his followers, and then I'm going to show you the people. Who who does he choose? All right, so go back to verse 13, Mark 3, 13. It says that Jesus went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Okay, so um, this is when he's calling his disciples. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us that Jesus prayed all night long before he chose his team. And before we were told who's on his team, we're told about the plan. What did Jesus want to do with his team? And I love it. It's pretty simple. Come to him, be with him, and then be sent out to preach and to have authority over demons. That's kind of a simple three-step. Come to him, be with him, and then be sent out in his authority, okay? So a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is somebody who aligns their life to follow Jesus. And I, I, I like the word apprentice, to be apprenticed by Jesus. Jesus. And so we are being taught by him so we can become like him, and so we can do the things that he did. That's what an apprentice does. At the end of the day, when you're done being apprenticed, you look like the one you've been following. You look like the one that's been training you. That's what Jesus invites us into, to be trained by him, how to live like him, how to do the things that he did. And can I add one piece to that that we so often forget as Western Christians? He invites, that, he invites us to do that as groups. He invites us to do that. These were 12 that he's going to pull together to do it together. Jesus didn't meet one-on-one with 12 different guys and each of them were with him individually and then he didn't send them out one by one he did this as a group all right there's so many parts of the world that would read that text and go oh yeah he's thinking about us because we're americans i read that he goes okay he's calling me to have a quiet time with him and then he's calling me just to go out in my day and just do my best to serve him it's like no he's calling us to do this do this together that's kind of the whole community group thing you hear us keep talking about is that a follower of Christ is not really designed to do that one-on-one. We're, we're designed to do that in, in groups. Okay, so that's, that's the plan. And um, I love kind of the goal line of this. Okay, what, so why would you want us to be with you and what are you going to do? Uh, you're going to have authority 
over over the evil one. And there's an author, there's a book called Seeking the Face of God by Gary Thomas. It's I put it in my top 10 books of books that have really helped me understand how do you follow Jesus? Like what are why do you pray? Why do you read the Bible? Like it's a it's a real interesting look at the spiritual disciplines and how you stay close to God. Seeking the Face of God by Gary Thomas. He has a chapter in there that says, "Okay, what's your goal at the end of t- at the end of the day?" What's the evidence that you follow Jesus, that, you, that he's really influencing your life? And he uses this phrase. He says, you'll be a hellbreaker. That if you're truly following Jesus, you'll be a hellbreaker. That wherever Jesus went, hell and Jesus couldn't co-occupy the space. So wherever Jesus went, if there was discouragement, he brought hope. Wherever Jesus went, when there was hatred, he brought love. Wherever there was tr- uh, lies, he brought truth. Like Jesus constantly opposed. And so that, that, that chapter in seeking the face of God is, so how can you tell, like, what are you aiming at with all your spiritual disciplines? Well, I've memorized X number of verses. I've spent X minutes praying this week. No, what about, are you a hellbreaker? Like, do you see God using you, like, wherever you go and wherever you step? That that's, that's kind of the end zone for a follower of Christ. So, so that's the plan. Come to him, be with him, and then be sent out in his authority and in his power. So do you see a difference already between a fan who mobs Jesus just to get something from him and goes back home and a follower who, who literally just wants to be with Jesus, wants to be in his presence, learn from him, become like him. So he's looking for followers. That's the plan. Now let's talk about who's on the team, okay? three sixteen to 19, we see Jesus' first list of recruits. And again, no five stars, no four stars. Like these are a bunch of, at best, one star recruits. Okay, so it says he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, uh, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is the sons of thunder. Um, It's kind of a cool nickname. So Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector, a trader who sold out his own people for the Romans, okay? So, and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, uh, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. That's not your dream team right there. That's not, again, five-star athletes. Jim Harbaugh wouldn't look at your list and go, man, I wish I had your players. He'd be like, good luck with that lot. Okay, so again, Jesus picked who no one else would pick. Seven of the 12 were fishermen. Uh, None of these guys were scholars. None of these guys were great speakers, philosophers. None of these guys would have been on any of the religious establishment's radar. No school was after these guys to come join. No rabbi was after any of these 12 to join his team. Jesus picked 12. And you see that throughout the Bible, that God doesn't pick the, the great. God doesn't pick those that everybody else looks to. Because at the end of the day, when God does his work, it's very clear who did the work, right? So it's not them. It's not like, wow, good thing God had those people on his team. Like, it's never that. It's always like, wow, how did God do that through those people? That's the way God loves to work. The power is going to come from being with Jesus and clinging to Jesus' message. That's where the power comes. It's not in the team, but it's the one who pulled the team together. It's the one who apprenticed the team. It's the one who gave that team authority and a message. And then it's that team doing what they were told. All right, that's, that's the key. That's how Jesus works. And so um, in Acts 4, there's a great scene. Jesus already died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. So now his team, Jesus had about 18 months with his team, poured into them, invested in them, and then unleashed them. And so in their first days, blazing out 
They were leading people to Jesus. They were preaching the gospel with boldness. You would never recognize that team with this team. Like, stark difference. Like, how did those guys get that? In fact, they were on trial. Peter and John were on trial for preaching the gospel in front of the same group of people that sentenced Jesus to death. And it says that when they saw Peter and John, they said they were average, ordinary, uneducated men, but they were drawn by their boldness. How could these guys be so bold? How could these guys be so strong? And their summary was, the only way, the only explanation they had was that those men had been with Jesus. Boom, that's the plan. Be with me, then go out in my authority. That's a follower. And so if we could get to just the absolute punchline, it's at the very end of this chapter. So Jesus looking for followers, ready to follow his plan, be with him, go out in his authority. And look at 31 to 35. It says his mothers and brothers came. They're not, they're relentless. Family's coming back again, guys. This is a little bit later. The family's coming. They're standing outside. They sent a message to him. They called him. And a crowd was sitting around Jesus. Again, there's the crowds. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Here's punchline, guys, the whole chapter. This is what we've been waiting for. Whoever does the will of my brother and my son. Out of all the crowds, Jesus, you're going to pick your team. What are you looking for? He's looking for right here people who are sitting at my feet, who are listening, who are learning, and bottom line, who are ready to do the will of God. People who are willing to obey. He said it another way in John 14, 21. He said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me and he will be loved. I'm sorry, and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and I will manifest myself to him. Bingo, this is what Jesus is looking for. This would have been a shock to the audience that, that Mark is writing to, Christians living in Rome, um, maybe about 20 years, 30 years after the life of Christ. They would have already had on a pedestal Mary for being such a godly woman, such a servant, humble servant, who was willing to bear Jesus, be her son. They would already have elevated Jesus' brother James, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But for Jesus to say, you know the ones I'm really close to? It's not my family. It's like, what? Excuse me? Like, no, it's those who are, are willing to obey the will of my father. Obedience is Jesus' love language. To really be a follower of Jesus means you have arranged your life not just to learn from him, but also to obey him. And can I keep tagging on with others, with others that you have arranged your life to learn about Jesus and to obey him with others. So if I can go back to my football analogy, let's say that it's the first week of camp. All the, all the athletes are in, brand new, first day. And let's say you bring them all together and say, guys, we want to teach you here at the University of Iowa. Here's how you tackle. And here's former all-pro so-and-so to come show you how to do this. So they all gather, okay? And the techniques are shown. And there's going to be a certain element of that recruiting class that will look at that and go, oh, it's cool. He played in the NFL. Nice. That's a pretty good idea. And just kind of walk away, okay? I think I got it down, but that was cool to learn a little tip. And he's gone. There might be some people that will watch that demonstration and go, that's how they do that at Iowa? My high school coach was better than that. Jim Harbaugh is better than that. I'm not going to learn from that and just kind of walk away. But then there's going to be the players. They're going to just kind of stay and watch that. And they're just kind of watch. And they might be the ones, maybe a smaller group of them go up afterwards and say, Coach, could you show us that again? Could you show us how to do that? 
do you have a video of that? Is there something, can you send that to me so I can watch it throughout the week? Maybe be getting groups of players together and say, hey, let's work on that. That, that looks good. You know, obviously in that scenario, as the coach is looking at that recruiting class, who's he locking in on? He's locking in on that last group, right? It's the same deal with Jesus. Here he comes, <laughs> lived the life he lived, taught us so many things that are in his word, showed us how to do ministry, showed us how, you know, the rhythm, the plan, come to him, be with him, go out with him, with others. And now he's saying, okay, um, who's going to do that? Who's going to arrange their life? Who's going to align themselves so that they can be apprenticed by me so I can teach them how to live and how to do this together with others? Those are the ones I'm going to use. A- anyone's invited. You don't, have to, you don't have to have five stars to your name. You just, need, you just need to be ready to be open and say, Jesus, here's my life. You show me what to do. Even if you followed him for 30 years, guys, 40 years, or even Jesus, how do you want me to serve you? What's my ministry supposed to look like? Even if you've been in ministry for 20 years or 30 years, like, how do you want this to go? Those are the people that Jesus is going to use. Because bottom line, we can all come to Jesus with our agenda. Jesus, I, I think you should do this, or I think we should do this. Jesus has an amazing agenda. It's, you see it throughout the Bible, that God created us in his image, that we have rejected him, we have fallen away from him. But Jesus was sent uh, to restore us, to rescue us from our sin, and that Jesus now is on a mission to restore what God has created. And he's inviting us to be a part of that. So let me pray, and, and we'll just let you wrap up this time. And again, as we've looked, as we've looked like a mirror at three kinds of people that gather around Jesus, are you a fan? Are you a foe? Are you truly a follower this morning? And please know Jesus' heart is that we would all follow. And please know that that's accessible to anybody. Don't have to be a five-star. You can be a one-star. But he's just looking at our hearts. Are we ready to truly follow him and let him apprentice us and teach us and show us? So could you respond uh, to Jesus right now? Just talk to him about this invitation to come be on his team to come learn from him. Let him train you. Let him teach you. Jesus, what a privilege for us to kind of look behind the scenes at how you did what you did. How today, if this is an average day, 175,000 people all around the world are going to start following you. How did that happen? What did you do? And here's the plan. Here's what you're looking for. You took a small group of people that nobody else expected anything from, and you have changed the world. And we see how you do that. We see who you do that through. And Jesus, I so thank you for this church. I just see so many examples of people who have faithfully trusted you, followed you, but I thank you that you're not done yet. May we be a people that stay humble before you and just keep coming to you and say, you show us, what do you want? What do you want me to do, Jesus? And then please do great things. We live in a city, Father, that doesn't really need us to just learn more, learn more, learn more. You need us to be a church that does what you're calling us to do. We live in a city that needs to see what you want to do through your people. And may many in this city be drawn to you as they see us following you together. In your great name we pray, amen.